Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome to the show. I'm Jason Hewlett sitting in for Jeff Andreas this morning. It's election day in Canada. Have you gone out and voted yet? Well, it's not too late to do so as polls are open until 7 o'clock tonight. Elections can be pretty stressful for the candidates, their families, and political watchers. How does one keep calm and carry on? Wayne Porterfield has written a book on meditation and mindfulness, and he'll talk about this practice and how it can be applied to Election Day. That's in the second half hour. He's a local human rights lawyer, but Bill Sundu is also president of the Kamloops Thompson Caribou NDP Riding Association and former federal NDP candidate. He joins me later in the show to reflect on this year's campaign and offer some insights on what he thinks worked for all the parties and what hasn't. It's shaping up to be a close call at the polls today, and no matter how things play out, business, how business is done in Canada will be impacted. Or will it? I've got the president of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce with me in about 20 minutes to discuss scenarios from a local perspective. But first, one of my favorite things about doing this show back in July were my Monday morning conversations with Kyla Lee of Acumen Law, and she joins me on the line now. Good morning, Kyla. Good morning. It's nice to talk to you again. It's great to talk to you, too. I've been looking forward to it. I mean, I've been able to keep up with some of your shenanigans on Facebook, but I know this is very different than what we talk about here. Um, so marijuana edibles are now legal in Canada, Kyla, um, but we, can't, we shouldn't expect to see them in stores, at least in government stores, until about mid-December. Why is that? The reason for that is that when Health Canada um, and the government legalized cannabis edibles, they required um, applications still to be filed in order for people to sell and distribute the edibles. And there's a 60-day notification period required on uh, any application for uh, edible distribution and sales. So anybody who wants to put them out onto the market first has to give 60 days notice to Health Canada and be approved to do so before Health Canada will allow them to 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 do it. Okay, and it was that was and that was just the reasoning just for this specifically. So that's not a, a general product thing. Nope, law? It's, okay. for, it's just for the edibles. So it's 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 kind of they're legal, but they're not legal. So if you're seeing edibles at a store, you know they're not currently legal or approved by Health Canada, and you should, you know, consider whether you want to stay away from those ones. Well, that that was going to be my next question because I know I have seen them in some stores or in in the neighbor in the community here. Um, so with those, just they weren't. Why would they end up having them and not not other shops, Kyla? Like, is it just there, they weren't weren't submitted? Uh, there are lots of stores that are still operating in sort of this gray market mm-hmm. where they're providing um, cannabis products that aren't federally approved or licensed, or even uh, shops that are still running without any licensing whatsoever, uh, in in defiance of all of the cannabis laws. And many of them are selling edible products. Um, they those stores run a huge risk because they could be facing uh, significant penalties either under the Cannabis Act federally or under British Columbia law. And even if you're somebody who's purchasing those products, there are offenses in British Columbia's Cannabis Act uh, relating to possession of illicit cannabis. So you should try and avoid them if you can. Okay, well, duly noted for at least till December. Uh, what kind of edibles are we going to see then in come December? Because I understand not it's not going to be a whole range of product. It seems like very specific ones. That's correct. We're not going to see a lot of uh, the stuff that we see in the United States, you know, cannabis-flavored Cheetos and, mm-hmm. and cannabis uh, gummies that are familiar shapes. Um, there's very limited uh, rules on these cannabis products. So we're going to see uh, shapes that aren't appealing to children, no familiar packaging or advertising, no uh, logos that would be enticing to children. It's all about protection of children so that kids don't look at the product and want to consume it. So I think we're going to see a lot 
lot of things that are not very interesting colors and very basic shapes like squares and triangles and things like that. So no like Flintstone shaped shaped <laughs> cannabis gummies or anything like that? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. It's kind of part of the fun of it to me is, is you know, the, the sort of whimsy of, of the shapes connected mm-hmm. to, the, to the recreational high that you get from using cannabis products. But um, I do understand that there have been a lot of instances of children taking cannabis, not understanding what's happening and having to be rushed to the emergency room. And we don't want that. No, no. And I, and I can even remember when I was a kid with vitamins, because there was the vitamins that were like fun shaped and I'd overdose on them. Those almost just because they looked really cool, right? So exactly. Yeah, um, and one of the other regulations that we're going to be seeing is a limitation of uh, ten milligrams of cannabis um, mm. in the package, which a lot of people have been very critical about, particularly for uh, very experienced cannabis users and medical users. I actually think that that regulation is appropriate. And, and why is that? Because I was thinking the same thing. I know some people say, well, I need more than, you know, the 10. I need like, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50. I'll have to buy more, take more. Why do you think they set this amount? For people who are really naive to cannabis products, um, setting the limit artificially low is important because the high that you get from consuming an edible is vastly different than from smoked cannabis. With smoked cannabis, you can titrate your dose. You can, you know, you can have a couple puffs, you feel the effects right away, Mm -hmm. you know when to stop. With edible cannabis, it takes about half an hour before you start to feel any of the effects. So people will often take more than they think they need um, because they're not feeling anything and then end up extremely high. And we see adults going to the ER convinced Mm -hmm. that they're dying as a result of this. That does make sense then when one put into that way. I know there's been some criticism about that saying that they're almost being too restrictive or too cautious, the CMA. I, I I understand the um, you know the the frustration that many people have, but the people that are in the uh, in the experienced user category are among the minority of users. They might be the majority of the vocal population about the cannabis experience, but the, they're the minority of users overall across the country. Um, and so the market needs to cater to the majority of users in a way that's safe and appropriate. And there's no prohibition on people making their own cannabis edibles at home that have a much stronger dosage that accommodates what they need or purchasing several packages of edibles and eating as much as they need to to get the high that they want. And so they still have an avenue to get what they want out of the market. They just can't get it in a single package. Which, which sounds like the smart move, uh, given how easy it would be to kind of consume too much. Yes, exactly. Um, some, what about packaging? Like, I mean, they're, they're very, in terms too, like they're trying to keep the packaging very very bland, like you were saying with the product itself, but they don't want to do anything kind of to entice uh, anyone to try it who shouldn't. Do you think the government is sort of overthinking things in fear of getting it wrong? I think the overthinking is definitely what's going on with packaging. I mean, if you look at even just the packaging for the smoked cannabis products, to buy a single pre-rolled joint, uh, you've got a ton of single-use plastic in the packaging. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to sort of wrestle with the the package just to open it to yes. get out your to get out your joint, um, and then uh, and then all that goes to waste. It's not recyclable or reusable at any point. Um, and I expect that we'll see a trend towards changing that. I think right now the goal is, again, to protect children, to go further than we have to because it's easier to walk something back than to add more restrictions in the future. That's very true. Um, Is there a thought that the, the legalization of the edibles is going to take a bite out of illegal edibles at all? 
I expect that it will. And the reason for that um, has to do with the fact that, the, by and large, uh, the illegal market right now that's thriving has to do with edible products. There are tons of people who don't want to smoke cannabis, who don't enjoy the experience of smoking cannabis. They like the different high they get from the edibles. Uh, they have lung conditions. Or they find that uh, for treating medical conditions, the edible products are more effective. Um, and so there's a large part of the, the illegal market that's thriving on the basis of, of edible products. Um, and so when we see legalized edibles, I think there will be a, a significant shift towards the legal stores and the readily available ones. I also expect that we'll see more enforcement from the provincial sort of cannabis police that we have of the edible market uh, once we have legal edibles. The, the British Columbia government has been pretty good about um, enforcing the law only when it comes to sort of uh, the gaps that have already been closed by the legal market. And I expect we'll see more enforcement once edible are legalized. I'm going to ask you to a bit of time traveling here back in back in the day when alcohol became became legal after prohibition. Was it as equally a bumpy ride? Like, is this sort of something going from a, an illegal substance to a legal one? Is there always a lot of struggling with the minutia of the law and details? There is always a lot of struggle and adjustment period. I think it was different when alcohol was legalized because there was sort of such a, a, a thriving um, sort of general market for speakeasies that, mm -hmm. um, you know, and there was much less regulation and licensing from government than we have in place now. We didn't understand as much about alcohol then as we do now and its risks. So the steps that were taken to protect children, to protect the public, to limit advertising, we didn't have as many of those restrictions sort of known to our legal system. So it was easier for alcohol than it has been for cannabis. And the stigma sort of historically mm -hmm. associated with cannabis as opposed to alcohol has been very different. Alcohol was always kind of generally accepted, even in the prohibition days, whereas cannabis has, has always been considered um, by many to be a, a very bad thing, you know, reefer madness mm -hmm. and, and all of this culture that, that developed around it. I notice it's still around too, even though it's been legal for a year, there's still that... Oh that stigma attached. Oh, absolutely. I talked to family members and friends who are, um, you know, older and who uh, have been sort of brought up in that culture, and they're still very resistant to the idea of even trying cannabis or walking into a legal store, um, which surprises me because the vast majority of the population seems to support cannabis legalization. And so it's, it's interesting to see that these people still exist. All right. Well, Kyla, thanks so much for coming on. It was great talking to you again. Thank you for having me. All right. That was Kyla Lee of Acumen Law. I'm Jason Hewlett, and I've got the president of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce joining me after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM, and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community, Radio NL, 610 AM News Talk, and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. All right, welcome back. Jason Hewlett sitting in for Jeff this morning. It's a tight race at the polls today as Trudeau's liberals and Shears conservatives are neck and neck. Regardless of who the victor is, it will likely be a minority government. That's me speculating. What will this mean for business? Will a liberal or conservative government be any different? How much change will there be locally regardless of who's in power? Here to answer these and other burning questions is Josh Knack, president of the Kelms Chamber of Commerce. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on again. I've been looking forward to it. First off, and I'm going to put you in the hot seat a bit here, ask you to predict what's going to happen later today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I predict that uh, tomorrow morning when we wake up, we will have a government. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think I do think it will be quite interesting. I mean, there there are certainly the majority of polls are, are showing a minority government, yep. and uh, and how that will play out, you know, is something that may not even be determined for for days. And that, that has happened in the past, right? Like it just it sits in, in kind of this limbo. Yeah, I mean, it's so close. We saw it here in BC, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know when I looked uh, this morning, the Conservatives were ahead, and it was like they had thirty-two point two percent, and the Liberals were like thirty-one point six percent. It's that close. Um, what? So say say though the Liberals win, uh, Trudeau manages to pull it off. How will that affect our business landscape? Like, I guess as a nation to start with, and then we'll boil sure. it down locally. I mean, you know, we've said all along that, that the thing that's most important to businesses is consistency. Mm -hmm. um, you can have new laws, new regulations, even new taxes, um, but as long as there's a level of consistency, you, you can generally adjust to it. it. It may not be a great scenario, but as long as it's a known scenario, then you, you make adjustments to it. I think the, the thing that's concerning to, to us, to our business community, is is the is the what ifs and mm -hmm. if we have a minority government and who who is it that's that's propping it up and how does that play out we saw here in in bc i think there was you know there was maybe more um more concern than was warranted with the ndp and and the mm -hmm. green coalition there i think uh, for the most part the ndp has governed for the most part to the center um i'm i'm not entirely sure how it'll necessarily play out at a federal level at a federal level though well, and it's hard. It's yeah. It's one of those things you're kind of trying to speculate on. Uh, with which is there? There's always been this um, thought process that say the Conservatives are the best party for business. But you, like you said, like provincially, the NDP has sort of made itself more center. Do you think those days of there being one party that's more business and one party that's more families is over? I mean, the way the way I see it, quite frankly, is that both the Liberals and the Conservatives govern to the center, just just different sides of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, everybody's going to have their their preference. Everybody's going to have their their bent. But I mean, quite frankly, I think I think most of them are primarily to the center. And I think that the uh, the rhetoric that the other party is, you know, one party is the party of fascists and the other party is the party of communists, yeah. is really just a, a rather unfortunate and pathetic attempt to to motivate the base. I, I, I intend to agree with you on on that one. There, I think you you can't <laughs> in this modern day and age, right? So much rides on 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 the economy. Um, you can't you can't sort of swing too much to a you know too social, right? Yeah. Or too or too business or too like you know fascist. Everybody like, wants to get reelected as well, and I mean Canada is a Canada is is for the most part a country of 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 you know pretty pretty cent centrist people. Mm -hmm. What um, locally here, did you see sort of any change in business during the last four years? Like, did things sort of seem to improve or go down or maintain? There, there's no question that, uh, and, and we saw this really throughout BC, that, that taxes and other government-based uh, fees, right? Because not everything's a tax. Sometimes it comes through as, as a fee or, or, or something along those lines. Those have, those have gone up. And those have gone up uh, provincially and federally, right? But I mean, mm -hmm. it still, still impacts the business. So there's no question that the cost of doing business in BC has gone up over the past four years. Yep. And unfortunately, the way that plays out then is that it's the cost of living that goes up because it's not as, it's not as if you can just simply absorb, absorb all, those, all those costs or all those taxes. It, it means that the cost of things goes up. It means that if you're competing with other provinces or in other countries, the competition gets tougher as well. So how do you sort of, as a business person, sort of combat that? To keep things affordable, like you know, 
Yeah, I mean, I I think you 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 combat it by by being by being active in uh, in and being vocal and mm-hmm. and you know with with an organization. Here's a shameless plug <laughs> with an organization like the Chamber of Commerce being yeah. being an advocate for that. Um, and and as I said, you just really need to adjust. I think one of the challenges over the last four years too was that there were a lot of taxes and a lot of fees that came in and, and, and a lot of changes, regulatory changes as well, that came in in a rapid period of time. And when they don't have a chance to sort of to play out, then you don't really know where you're going to end up. We we saw a lot of that with uh, with speculators tax with mm-hmm. the. Uh, with the uh, healthcare, the uh, the changes to the healthcare, um, in you know carbon tax, you you name it. There's been a lot of changes that that businesses had to adjust to. Uh, this could probably be a minority government. How does that affect things? Do you, do you find? Do you think they happen quicker, slower? They better, worse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, so from my context with minority governments, I believe we had one federally with yep. a conservative minority, minority, and and I, that that was a that was a good government. It was a government that had checks and balances in place, and I think it keeps people accountable. We've seen it even here in in BC. It's it's an interesting scenario the way it's played out, and and again, I think that it that it keeps it keeps government accountable. So I you know it, it's it's not problematic in and of itself. To me, really, what it comes down to is what changes or what sacrifices to a liberal or a conservative platform would have to be made. I think one really interesting scenario would be conservatives propped up by the block. Now, that would be ironic, wouldn't it? <laughs> that would be. <laughs> Will we see that today? I, I'm kind of curious. There was even talk of like a possible coalition at one point. You know, yeah, like, Imagine the old Reform Party and the Bloc Quebecois <sighs> teaming up. I'd pay to watch that. I really, really, really would. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we'd have to live in it. <laughs> we would, and that might be a bit messy, eh? Like, <laughs> when it comes to business and the economy, does it really, this is sort of the last question we got about a minute ago, does it really matter which party is in power? I Absolutely, it does. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it certainly does. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, yeah, I think it makes a huge difference. It, it makes a difference. There's, you know, there's certain parties that, uh, that that are, are are more let the let the market sort things out with some intervention. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Canada, it's never that you know sort of that just brutal capitalistic environment that we see in other places. But there are certainly certainly uh, parties that are much more inclined to to let the market sort it out, and others that that want to get right in there and and make a mess at times. Make a mess, or just be more involved in yeah. some capacity. Yeah. Right? Well, it'll be interesting to see how things play out today. It sure will. You're going to be paying close attention, I'm sure, Josh. Yeah, we'll be uh, glued to the TV at seven. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on again. Thanks for having me. Talk to you once again. That was Calum's Chamber of Commerce President Josh Knack. I'm Jason Hewlett. We're back with Calum's Human Rights Lawyer Bill Sundew after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back. Jason Hewlett sitting in for Jeff Andreas today. Bill Sundu is no stranger to Kamloops or its politics. He's a well-regarded human rights and criminal lawyer, a past federal election candidate, and the president of the Kamloops Thompson Caribou NDP Riding Association. I figured what better person to bring in and discuss what worked and what didn't during this year's campaign from the perspective of all parties and kind of compare it to the campaign back in 2015. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. It's a good day. Good day for Canada and good day for practicing our democracy. That's right. And I mean, it's so far, it's it's been busy. Like, this has been a very busy campaign in terms of people turning out wanting to vote. I mean, I read off uh, that our riding saw 29% turnout in advance voting as of late last week, meaning that more than 19,000 people have cast ballots already. 
2015, there was about 14,000, so there about 5,000 more so far. I'm sure it's going to be up, but I heard federally it's huge. What does this increase say to you? Well, that's actually hard to gauge. Uh, it's convenient to vote on advanced polls, but overall in Canada, we've had a trend of uh, less and less voter participation. Mm -hmm. 2015 was an exception. Um, I would be skeptical in thinking that the voter participation goes up in this election from 2015, largely because the election campaign hasn't been the most positive campaign we've had in Canada. No, it hasn't. I have some questions about that that we can discuss in a bit. Do you think um, in four years that Canadians are really that hungry for change again? I think so. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, a lot, uh, without getting into too much partisanship, there are election yeah, uh, Canada laws. Um, a lot was promised in 2015, and mm -hmm. there was a wave, uh, and there's been some disappointments and disillusionment. And so um, it'll be interesting night tonight, and finally, British Columbia is going to really count. It uh, is, In this yes. election, it'll be a close election, at least what the pollsters tell us. And um, so uh, we will wake up tomorrow likely to a minority government, and then, of course, it's going to take some time to sort that out. Yeah, and, and that, how long does it usually take to sort of sort out a minority government? Well, like? it'll depend on the numbers, right? Yep. And, and it's gonna, that's why British Columbia is going to really matter, uh, you know, um, what will be the numbers, and then there will be the jockeying and the negotiation. We've done this before. We've had minority governments in Canada. They've overall actually not been bad at all. We've done some very impressive things with minority governments, and we have a, a minority situation in British Columbia, yeah. and it's quite stable and been pretty uh, progressive. It has been, and I mean, there was a lot of you know, poo-pooing about that before, but it seems most people are pretty happy with the way things are rolling right now. I'm curious how that will be federally. I guess it depends which party maybe is more of the minority, you know what I mean, and who how that works out. Yeah, I think you know what one of the, the constitutionally the let's assume it's fairly close. Uh, uh, constitutionally, the outgoing government, we should call it the previous government, gets yep. the first chance to form the government. But from a political and optics point of view, if another party has um, more of the popular vote, or even just a handful of more seats, I think that might put some pressure on the governor general to to cede to that approach. But you know, that's for constitutional scholars <laughs> and political scientists. Um, it's, it'll be an exciting night. I think the block is a big factor in yep. this as well, right? Uh, seems like they are on the ascendancy, and their role and how many seats they win is a complicating factor in all of this, right? It's a regional right. party. It's a, they say sovereigntist, but really a separatist party, and, and that's a bit of a monkey wrench in the whole process. It'll be curious, because they have sort of been, like you say, ascending recently. Like, lots of parties. It seems like that the two big parties have kind of more battling it out amongst each else and it's giving room for the other other parties to kind of come up in the polls. Um, you were saying earlier about how this hasn't exactly been the best campaign, at least in the way it's run. And I remember watching the, the, the federal leadership debate a couple weeks ago, which was like a disaster in my mind. It was just yelling and talking over each other, etc. Do you think that will have impacted people's perceptions or, or feelings heading into this election? Like just the mood of the campaign and it's been called like the ugliest and dirtiest almost in Canadian history. Yeah, no, I think that that, that uh, disillusionment yes. uh, is there. It's been a disappointing campaign overall. Um, and this is something that is not unique to Canada. We've seen it south of the border. Mm -hmm. There is a growing, and it's been a long-term trend, I think, a lack of civility. Uh, we get these experts and uh, social media and wedge issues. And yet, you know, um, we pay a price in our democracy mm -hmm. because tomorrow... 
they're going to have to talk to each other again, well, that's just right? It, right? <laughs> and they're going to have to work together. And what we really need is is a more substantive debate on policy and issues that affect the country. There's significant issues, um, but we're, uh, we get this trend towards demonizing each other and making it harder to talk. And what we need is is the kind of politicians that can reach across the divide and yes. get things done. And we can disagree honorably. That's a real challenge. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When I ran in 2015, um, you know, uh, th th when I watched across the country, some of those negative tactics work. Yeah. Right? Which is and why people keep doing them. That's right. right? And yet, you know, and, 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 and that becomes a snowballing effect. And yet, uh, the public, I think, also has a responsibility to say, we, we want people who are fair and civil and thoughtful and can reach across the divide. So, we're all responsible, voters and politicians. Well, I was going to say, too, like, we, we've noticed that kind of behavior in society in general more. I mean, would you say that we've sort of seen a growth in intolerance and racism in the last four years, just in general as a society? Like, so, not just in Canada. Canada. That's a complicated issue, yes. Uh, but I think in, to some degree uh, it's been there, latent, but uh, leaders have failed to be leaders, mm -hmm. Mr. Trump and people like that, and have, have given voice to uh, ugly elements of our society which have heretofore been quiet. In Canada, in this election, I think that's actually been a very positive feature, and that's Mr. Singh. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the first non-white leader, federal leader in Canadian history. He's connected with people. And, and that's a very reassuring and proud thing for Canada, whether one votes for the NDP or another party. Yeah. Um, it, it basically is a message that Canadians have responded to, young people have responded to, and it says that we are widening the circle, mm -hmm. right? And when we widen the circle, we strengthen our country because the more voices, the more talents, uh, the more groups we bring in, not only does it bring in more intelligence and more talent, but it also says something about the kind of country and values that we want. And I think that has been one of the positive things in this campaign. There's, and this kind of ties into my next bit here, because there's there's a lot of spe the speculation that the millennials are going to have a huge influence on the vote, and that, that the leaders need to appeal to them. Do you think that's because these are values that that generation holds more dear? Yeah, so let me generalize about my For experience sure. in 2015. Um, that was a, a campaign that was 78 days long. Yeah, it was a long one. It was one. a very long <laughs> one. Uh, but it allowed uh, the candidates, such as myself, to really get out there and engage people and much more substantively. I, w I left that campaign quite encouraged about the future because of young people. Yep. Uh, what I found is they were concerned about issues like climate change. They were concerned about inequality. Uh, they believe in fairness, and they uh, embrace diversity. Now I'm generalizing, of course, but yeah. overall. And that gave me a lot of cause for optimism for the future. And we know that uh, that generation is having some considerable challenges, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if they vote in larger numbers than they traditionally have, then that changes the conversation. And I think that's ultimately a good thing for us going f in the future. I mean, we have a responsibility to live a better better future for the next generations, right? We do. And we do. And sometimes yeah. it feels like we fall short. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, our, our immediate preoccupation sometimes don't allow us to look down the road because we, uh, and, and we're all collectively responsible for this. We look at the next election cycle rather than, you know, even government should be designing policy that's 10, 20 years yeah. down the line. And there was an absence of some, a, a considerable amount of that kind of discussion in this election around aging population, foreign policy, industrial innovation, right? Productivity, the opioid crisis, yeah. those kind of things. Well, I know that the uh, in the National Post today, there was an editorial that was saying this was a 
basically a campaign about, about nothing. It's almost like the Seinfeld of election campaigns. There's no one key issue that sort of dominated, nor even like a scandal or any one... Well, we had you know, blackface. But that, but that yeah, was almost right. pre, and, you know what yeah, I mean, just as it was yeah. happening. But I mean, other than that, there was just nothing much to it. And I know for myself, even as someone who kind of pays attention to this thing, it was easier to almost forget it was going on at times. What do you think? Well, uh, uh, it's hard for me to answer that because I'm a political I know. Junkie, right? <laughs> <laughs> Eat, sleep, wake it. Um, I think you're right. Uh, th there really wasn't a defining issue. We only had one English language debate where the leaders showed up and it was a yelling fest, yeah. largely. Uh, uh, we needed more debates and maybe even issues specific, like, for example, on aging population yeah. or on climate change or foreign policy. There's a lot of things going on in the world and there's some, some uh, disconcerting uh, wins, right? I mean, the rise of China, trade tensions, mm -hmm. what's happening with Brexit, what's happening with the U.S. And we're in an awkward spot. You know, we're, we're part of the global economy. What happens elsewhere affects us. And there really wasn't a discussion about Canada's place in the world and, and where do we go forward to to ensure that we continue to have a good economy, that we are safe and stable, and, and uh, that we can play a constructive role. And there was an absence of that. There was, and instead it just sort of became about finger-pointing and name-calling, and, and it, it kind of, it's disillusioning for someone that's paid attention for a yeah. very long time, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. But having said that, you know, I still think today I call it a beautiful day. Yeah. Because, you know, a democracy is a great thing, and great sacrifices have been paid for it, we fought wars in it, and it's not onerous to go vote. So I hope that the voter turnout will be very, very high and very good. It's a, it's a gift, right? It is. Uh, and a responsibility, I believe. Um, you know, I'm I, I'm, I always have a problem when people say they're all the same and why should I vote? I think it's a responsibility and um, it's, it's a great honor to have that democracy. We need a lot of work to improve our democracy, yes, we <laughs> right? Electoral reform, the role of MPs rather than the power of yep. the prime minister's office and unelected uh, officials in the prime minister's office. But those are things that if we engage each other, Canadians are smart people, will come up with the solutions. What do you think sort of is the big, big issue here in Kamloops federally? Like what do people, what have you heard is sort of something people are very concerned about? You know, um, so I, I don't think it's different than most other places. It, it is about uh, affordability. It's about uh, people feeling economic precarity. You know, there's a certain segment of our population that are only one or two paychecks away from really serious crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, aging population, climate change. Forestry has been talked about, uh, but it's wider than just Kamloops. British Columbia yep. and Canada generally. Well, there's a change a in the world, issue. right? Like yes, yeah. So uh, I think the issues here are the same as they are elsewhere, and uh, um, and they're important issues, right? I mean, e economics is always primary issue. Climate change. We've seen the wildfires here the last couple of years, yep. right? Uh, housing affordability. I mean, you know, if you're you're a young couple trying to buy a house, even in Kamloops, it's pretty expensive now. What is the entry level? Is like four hundred thousand? Yeah, and you're 000? not getting much. No. four hundred thousand, right? No, you're not. Uh, that's a heck of a lot of money in a. <laughs> country where we have a tremendous amount of land and a small population. <laughs> Go figure that one I, out. Yeah, I think it's yeah. just, yeah, somewhere yeah. we messed up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess sort of uh, one last little question uh, here. It looked like in, in the pipeline, is, of course, is a big issue, but the people are very close in the feeling of that too. Like, Do you think that's something that's going to go away no matter who's in power here? That'll be really interesting how that unfolds given the election results. No, I don't think it'll go away. It, it's it's a it's a, an issue that uh, unfortunately is really dividing our country. Right? Um, we've got forces in Alberta talking 
I think, irresponsibly mm-hmm. about things like separation and so forth. I don't think that's warranted in a country like Canada. No. But, but nonetheless, uh, it's a sensitive topic, and um, we need thoughtful diplomats to deal with that issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Bill, I know you're going to be paying attention later today, obviously. I'd be curious to see what happens tomorrow morning. I'll maybe follow up with you on Facebook and see what you thought. Well, it'll be an <laughs> exciting night for sure. That will Thank be. You. All right. Thanks, Bill. My pleasure. All right. That was Kelvis Thompson, Caribou NDP Riding Association President Bill Sundu. I'm Jason Hewlett, and we're back with a few tips on how to remain calm on this election day after this. Listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. All right, good morning and welcome back. I'm Jason Hewlett taking over for Jeff Andreas this election day. Life can be pretty hectic and stressful at times, as I'm sure you'll all agree. This can be especially true on days like this when many have a lot riding on the outcome of something as life altering as a federal election. One way to navigate through tough days is through meditation and mindful practices, which I've tried and find actually quite helpful. Wayne Porterfield is a meditation and mindfulness teacher who's written a book on the subject called The Dance of Dynamic Peace, and he joins me now to talk about this. Welcome, Wayne. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. So first off, for not everyone probably understands what meditation and mindfulness is, can you kind of give us a Cliff Notes version of how that is? Yeah. Mindfulness is the aware, awake, and alert state of being, Mm -hmm. and it's the knowing that you are awake aware and alert. And meditation is the tool that we use to actually help us to create a greater sense of mindfulness within the body. Because you're quieting everything else down, including your, not so much like turning off your brain, but just not letting yourself latch on to any one particular thought, right? Like you just kind of go with the flow. Exactly. (laughs) And meditation is really, the practice is just about um, noticing a focus Mm -hmm. and returning to that. And so I use breath and so I just kept returning to my breath every time that I meditate. When the mind wanders, you just come back to noticing the breath. And it cal- calms you down and helps you to become still and present. Okay, so now you wrote a book about this. How did that come about? Because not everybody just goes and writes a book about anything, right? <laughs> like, so what made you want to do this? Yeah, I, I wanted to share my own journey uh, of actually trying to create a greater sense of inner peace within myself. Yeah. I've always had this ever-present, ubiquitous fear and anxiety and I know that I'm not unique in that. And so I wanted to share my experience, my learnings, and my insights through my own practice to help people actually find greater inner peace within themselves. Okay. And so what does the book do? It sort of walks you through different steps, like you say, on how to focus on your breath, or, or I know just sometimes even just paying attention to sounds can help. How do, how do you kind of break it down in the book? Well, the premise of the book is that at the core of our being, each of us is looking for a greater sense of happiness, joy and peace mm-hmm. within our lives and yet the ways that we go about it take us further away from experiencing that everything from the way that we eat to the thoughts that we nurture within our minds and so the book helps people to actually understand what is peace what is the dance of dynamic peace because our lives are full of ups and downs mm-hmm. and so how do we manage to keep ourselves in a state of peace when that happens And it takes you through meditation and then all sorts of things that you can do from a practical perspective. So, you know, in terms of how we eat, causing no harm, um, being more kind, more compassionate. And so it takes you through all of those different components and also provides practical applications that you can use at the end of each chapter to implement into your life. Interesting. Now, where did you learn about meditation and mindfulness? Like, how did you, what was your defining moment that got you into it? Mm. 
Well, about 32 years ago, I got into meditation and practicing mindfulness. And it really changed my life, um, diet, thoughts, everything. I spent five years living in a sanctuary in mm -hmm. Virginia under the uh, guidance of a specific meditation teacher. And then I just have come um, to continue to expand that, studying different Eastern philosophies, mysticism, and incorporating that into actually helping to create a greater sense of peace within my own life through everything. And now I, I teach meditation, mindfulness, and yoga, as you mm -hmm. mentioned, mm -hmm. and, and wanted to write the book. Interesting. What, what, you said you wanted to sort of find more peace. Was there any one thing that happened that was kind of like, I know for myself, I went, my, went through some health issues with my son when he was like, you know, like a month or two old, and that was kind of the breaking point for me in learning how to navigate that. Was there anything for you that was like a real big moment? Uh, for me, it really was this, as I said at the beginning, the, this ubiquitous fear and anxiety yeah. that I always carried, fear of, of health issues, fear of death, yeah. and um, really wanting to find some way to actually help me cope and deal with that. And so that has always stayed with me. And, um, and now I, I'm really wanting to share my insights with others. So, okay, it's election day. There's it some is. people with a lot riding, <laughs> a lot riding on this, candidates, and even you know people who watch like a political pundits, et cetera. So what, what would you recommend people do? Because people get worked up over politics, right? At the best of times. What would you recommend like, the candidates do today to kind of just you know, keep calm, yeah. not let the stress get to them? I think first and foremost, vote. Yeah. Because uh, we always need to take some type of action. Okay. And then recognize that we have no control over the external world. The only thing we have control over are our own thoughts. And so if we can notice our own thoughts and actually create thoughts that are, are um, serving of us, that actually help to create greater happiness within ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and coming back to the breath. Like just notice your breath, breathing in, breathing out. Allow whatever is going to unfold to unfold mm -hmm. and notice the thoughts that you have around whatever comes up and just notice how you're holding a specific perspective or point of view that actually creates your sense of suffering or, or dis-ease that you have within yourself. So it's kind of stopping yourself, like, you know, when, like, say when we do this show and you're having a technical issue instead of getting mad or something, do you try to talk, do you talk yourself out of that moment or just not listen to that thought? Yeah, and it's not so much talking yourself out of it, it's recognizing that there are things that we don't have control over, mm -hmm. but what we do have control over is our thoughts and coming back to the breath. The breath always brings us back to the present moment. Thoughts are always either future-focused or past-focused, and we have no control over those. That's right. The past has happened. The future, you, you can, <laughs> we can't change it, You can't right? change it, no. <laughs> and so just coming back to the present moment, being focused on what you have control over, and that simply is your own thoughts. There is something to be said about the breath, like because that, that intake, and then when you release, you can actually feel your body stop and slow down, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And if I could give people advice, like something they could actually do is to create a bit of stillness in your life every day mm -hmm. and just notice the breath, the inhale, the exhale, listen to the sound of the birds chirping, watch the autumn leaves that are falling mm -hmm. on the trees, or even just sit and take in the sunrise and the warmth of the sun on the face. That will help to create a greater sense of peace in your life. There's even um, apps on your phone that'll remind you to pause. There <laughs> are you know apps, what I mean? right. <laughs> All that kind of stuff that For works, sure. right? Yeah. And I use a meditation app called Insight Timer, yep. and it's fantastic. Excellent. So the book, where can people find it? The book is available through the online um, stores at Amazon, mm -hmm. as well as chapters. It's okay. not available in the store. You just have to go online. 
and it's available there. How about in terms of finding out more about yourself? Um, people can check out my website, yep. wporterfield.com, um, yep. and have a look there, and um, would love to connect with people. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this important subject. We all need a little more calmness in our life. You're very oh. correct on that one. Well, thank you for having me. Excellent. Thank you. And that, that was Wayne Porterfield. He's the author of The Dynamic Dance of Peace. And that wraps up things for today. Thanks to Jeff for letting me sit in this morning and to Paul, my producer. Stay tuned for election coverage later on today. You won't want to be anywhere else. I'm Jason Hewlett. Thanks for listening and have an excellent day.